Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'm your host. I'm joined by Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant, Sarah Agatoni. How are you, Agatoni? I've been having a Black History Month because, you know, <laughs> the rest of the year, my Black history ceases to exist, yeah? <laughs> I've been reading Ijeoma Omebunyo's Questions for Ada. Ijeoma is a poet and author born and raised in Lagos. Questions for Ada is her first published collection of poetry, and it's great. The poems are an ongoing exploration of the self and uh, the narrator's relationship to her personal and collective history. And it's great, and it seemed especially fitting for Black History Month. I've also been listening to Jidena's The Chief. Uh, His debut album just came out this Friday, and I'm looking forward to jamming to the rest of it. Jidena's aesthetic features Nigerian influences, and you know, I'm also here for how Black history is incorporated and represented in art today. Talking about albums, Sinkane's new album, Life and Livin' It, is now out. OK Africa says, Life and Livin' It is, quote, an elegantly executed pop album about determination, self-preservation, and positivity in the face of adversity, quote. Mm. We're big fans of Sinkane, who just a few weeks ago curated a wonderful weekend music break for Africa as a country featuring Sudanese artists. Talking about Sudan, let's do a couple of updates related to President Trump's executive order that banned entry to refugees and citizens from seven Muslim-majority countries, including Sudan. The self-declared independent nation of Somaliland has submitted a letter to the U.S. Secretary of State and the Homeland Security Secretary asking for an exemption from the executive order. According to a government press release, Somaliland's foreign minister argues in the letter that Somaliland doesn't suffer from the, quote, deteriorating conditions due to war, strife, disaster, and civil unrest, which increase the likelihood that terrorists will use any means possible to enter the United States, end quote. Yeah, way to throw your neighbors under the bus, Somaliland. On a more serious note, the uncertainty caused by President Trump's executive order has had a really dangerous impact on asylum seekers. The New York Times reported on a surge in people crossing the border from Minnesota into Manitoba, Canada, and then filing for asylum. These asylum seekers are walking for hours in the dead of the winter night when temperatures are far below freezing. And there actually was a reporter from the Canadian news agency, CBC, who this week met one such asylum seeker at night, a Somali man who said he had been walking for 21 hours. That's incredible. You know, the first time he showed me the video, I thought that wasn't real. Right, because who could imagine that that would be real? Yeah, and it makes me think right now, Canada appears to be a haven for refugees. And just the other week, presidential candidate Emmanuel Macron released a video welcoming climate change scientists to France, saying, this is your nation, you're welcome. But it also begs the question, what kinds of refugees are going to be accepted in this country, right? Is it just people who are already qualified or people who are just seek refuge and are quote-unquote, full of potential. I also wonder, too, about, you know, Canadians accepting these asylum seekers. I'm I'm really glad that there's a chance for asylum seekers in Canada, but also why can't the Canadian government change its agreement with the United States of America to not have to make these people walk in the dead of winter in the middle of night, but just present themselves at the border and seek asylum? Well, that's it for this week's updates. Check out our website on Monday morning where we'll have links to what we've mentioned and a few bonus links to other things we're reading and learning from the continent. In the third week of Black History Month, we chat with Dr. Michelle Moyd, Associate Professor of History at Indiana University, where she is also Associate Director of the Center for Research on Race and Ethnicity in Society. Dr. Moyd is a historian of Eastern Africa with interests in the region's history of soldiering and warfare. 
Her first book, Violent Intermediaries, explores the social and cultural history of African soldiers in the colonial army of German East Africa, what is today's Tanzania. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for asking me. You know, there are so many interesting avenues one can pursue in the study of African history. And I just wondered, what drew you to the study of soldiering and warfare? Well, it's kind of a two-part answer, I guess. Um, first, I grew up in the military. Father was in the Air Force for almost 30 years. And so I grew up on bases and did the whole military kid life. My dad was in the Air Force, too, 22 years. Yeah, so you know what I mean. Yeah. And then I myself went in the Air Force after college. I had an ROTC scholarship for college, and then I went on active duty the year after I graduated. In the course of that career, I got a master's degree in African history, and I taught at the Air Force Academy. And so the second part of the answer is that while I was teaching on the faculty at the Air Force Academy, um, I was teaching core courses in military history and African history. I just kind of got fascinated with the intersection of those two, and uh, especially World War One in mm-hmm. East Africa. And then I got really interested in trying to figure out who those soldiers were, uh, the soldiers who fought in the campaign, especially the German soldiers who are referred to as Askari, a Swahili and Arabic word for soldier or police. And that was the beginning of the dissertation and then the book. Right. So let's talk a little bit about your book, Violent Intermediaries. In it, you note that there's a gap of knowledge on pre-colonial histories of Africa. I wonder what you would attribute that to Mm -hmm. and how that observation of this gap shaped your own work. There are a couple of issues one could raise here. The first is that the sources for the pre-colonial period in African history are um, scarce. Mm-hmm. And the ones that exist require some care in using them. The reason for their scarcity often has to do with just the nature of the sources that can give us access to the pre-colonial. So, for example, you know, historians have made good use of things like oral histories, some of which have been transcribed, some of which, you know, people conduct, obviously, many, many decades later. Right. But those require special skill sets to use and to work with. Other kinds of sources like material culture and linguistics and things like that, which are common sources that historians of the pre-colonial can use, also require some really sort of deep technical skill mm-hmm. to use. So it's a combination of the scarcity of the materials and then I think the particular sorts of dedication that historians have to have to acquiring the skills needed to interpret them fully. So I think those are two factors that play into the dearth of pre-colonial studies the further away we get from them, you know. Right. So you're writing about a time period that also has relatively scarce resources. So how did that shape your ability to collect information for your own book? I decided that I was going to pay attention to some source spaces that others had, I thought, neglected. Uh Most notably, there are lots and lots of colonial memoirs and other kinds of texts that were produced by, in my case, German colonial officers and administrators um, and missionaries and others, travelers. You know, all of these sources can be used to glean the kind of information I was interested in, which was the social and cultural history of these African soldiers Mm -hmm. um, in the German colonial army. 
but they required some attention to the kinds of genre conventions and, you know, racist framings that permeated the texts. And, you know, historians, rightly so, have been quite skeptical of using them as sources, um, taking them seriously. But I decided that that was going to be one of the primary ways that I tried to access these histories. And then there were other, you know, more conventional sources that I used, like mm-hmm. government records and mm-hmm. um, photography and, you know, diaries, letters, archival materials. But it was a lot of piecing little bits of things together to try and come up with a portrait of um, the social and cultural lives of these men and their families to the extent that I could. So the primary subject of your study is the East African Ascari. How would you characterize or define what an Ascari was during the period of your study? Well, so the word Ascari, as I mentioned briefly before, comes out of Arabic and Swahili and also appears in Turkish. That simply means soldier or police or guard. And so it had widespread usage across northeastern Africa and then even into the Mediterranean region. And it was very much a term that was picked up on by colonial armies to describe the troops that they recruited to fight in their armies in Africa, beginning roughly in the 1890s, although there are some earlier cases as well. And for the most part, the term Ascari during that period referred to soldiers in these standing armies. Although, of course, in you know local parlance, anybody who filled the role of a soldier or police or guard could be referred to as an Ascari. And if you've been to East Africa more recently, you know that Ascari are people who guard facilities, compounds, homes. Right. Um, so it's a word that's in common use, but not so much to refer to soldiers. Right. So. I have to admit, I had always presumed that African soldiers who fought in the German army, for example, in what is today Tanzania, I just presumed that they were all forced conscripted. But I learned from your book that's how maybe some people had come to be Mm -hmm. in the army, but actually there are many different ways. Can you talk about that a little bit? What's interesting about studying colonial soldiers is that they do come into these armies in many different ways. And so if you were to look at the case of Francophone West Africa, for example, because the French were active there and uh, active in building militaries there from a much earlier stage than what you see in East Africa, for example, you can see them going through different phases of recruitment and applying different criteria. So in the earliest stages, you see very clearly that French military officers are essentially buying slaves and ostensibly emancipating them, but essentially forcing them into service conscription. Mm -hmm. In later decades, that shifted and they began to recruit soldiers who look much more like the ones that I describe in my book, who for the most part were recruited under terms that guaranteed them a pretty good salary, upward mobility, it allowed them to keep their families with them, they wore uniforms. And so all of the hallmarks of you know what we would think of as a professional standing army in the 20th century. And then there are gradations in between. There are also auxiliary troops, troops that were recruited as needed to kind of fight alongside um, soldiers like the Ascari, who would be levied for a particular purpose and then released. And of course, in times of war, so um, what you see in World War One, for example, as the European armies come to reckon with the prospect of fighting against each other in the colonies, as well as on the Western Front, 
and they come to realize that they need more manpower, they increase the numbers of men that they try to recruit. When recruitment drives and incentives don't work because people start to realize that a military service might not be all it's cracked up to be under these circumstances and people flee from recruiters, then you can see resorting again to more forced means of drawing people into their militaries. But you see the vacillations back and forth between these modes and um, the German colonial army in East Africa is somewhat exceptional in as much as it was because it paid its troops quite well and because it took care of them in certain ways. They didn't have to resort to conscription until things got really bad for them in, in the middle of World War One. Right. In the introduction of your book, you talk about myth-making, how East African Ascaris were portrayed as good and uncomplicated. And you also bring up the idea of a usable past in relation to how Tanzanian and European scholars portrayed the Iskaris as collaborators in an attempt to supplement this existing myth. Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could comment on the two ideas of myth-making and usable past, how they diverge and intersect, and how this affects scholarship of national histories and identity. So yeah, I would say that both of the elements you're talking about are are types of myth-making. One set of myths has to do with the ways that Germans, after the war, try to sort of use the Ascari to illustrate a point about them as model colonizers. And so the context for that is that Germany lost all of its colonies after World War I because they lost the war. And um, the British, the French, the Belgians um, all divided up the former German colonies amongst themselves, more or less, under the auspices of the mandate system in the, the League of Nations. So Germany tries to assert within that context a claim to its former colonies, and in making that argument, they insisted that they were actually model colonizers. The Ascari, who are then painted as these loyal, dedicated soldiers who sort of came to represent the entire German East African population in certain ways, were used to to kind of bolster that myth of Germany being a model colonizer. It had nothing to do with any sort of realistic representation of what the Ascari had done over the course of scant three decades of colonial rule there, which involved tremendous violence. But it celebrated them as these very loyal professional soldiers who never let the Germans down. Um, And really, I mean, I I talk about this as a way for Germany to, on the one hand, uphold this myth of being a model colonizer, but on the other hand, as a way of really kind of avoiding any sort of discussion of the tremendous violence that was done during the period of colonial rule. So that's one part of it. The other kind of myth-making that took place then, though, was after independence in Tanzania, Julius Nyerere, the first president of Tanzania, and you know the people who surrounded him in government and at the new university, participated in the making of a, a Tanzanian past that could serve their needs in the present. You know, this is not specific to Tanzania. This is something that took place all across the continent as nation-states became independent of former colonial rulers. So this idea of the usable past is that you look backwards to moments in your history where you can claim a sort of unity in the case of Tanzania that the most obvious place to look for these moments of unity were during the colonial period and in particular during two anti-colonial wars that took place the first, the Hehe War in the 1890s, and then between 1905 and 1907, the Maji War. In both cases, the rhetoric of proto-nationalism was mobilized to describe these 
actually quite complex moments of anti-colonial warfare in terms that would serve the new nation state as a model of past unity. How did people think of Ascari? People who had served for the Germans, right? Were they... Uh, by people, I mean Tanzanians, right? Like, yeah. do they equate them as part of this common enemy of their past? It's interesting. In the scholarship, you can clearly see a moment in the early 70s where people, and this, again, is not specific to um, Tanzanian history, but this category of the collaborator becomes an active category of analysis for many people. And the Afkari fit squarely in there. Interestingly, because Tanzania was a socialist country, their allies in Eastern Europe also seized on the idea of the German colonial past as clear evidence of the evils of Western Germany, right? Uh-huh. So they used the, the Ascari as these caricatured, overly violent, sort of uh, almost monstrous figures who did tremendous damage to Tanzania. Now, of course, it's true that they were extremely violent and they did horrible things, and I'm not at all trying to minimize that. But I think there is damage done when we try to create monsters out of people who are acting under the circumstances within which they live. And in this case, colonial soldiers were people who were trying to make a way out of no way, as they say. (laughs) You know, they're uh, men who are operating within a pretty narrow set of possibilities for upward mobility. And so in keeping with the idea of myth-making, this figure of the Ascari really can only serve the purpose of either this very kind of sterile, loyal, dedicated soldier in the German post-war case, or in the nationalist case, they serve as the clear example of the brutishness of the colonial state, and that in for a capitalist state as well, in the case of Tanzania, at least. Thank you for your time today. You're welcome. My pleasure. That's all for this week. Share your thoughts and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent at ufahamuafrica.com. You can also find us on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Sarah Agatoni, Smith College Class of 2017, is Ufahamu Africa's Research and Production Assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. We'll leave you this week with Aha by Sinkane, an artist from Sudan by way of Brooklyn, New York. Until next week, Safiri Salama. (laughs) 